Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we study Habakkuk chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And Yahweh answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he is never enough. He gathers for himself all the nations, and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in Yahweh's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. In short, yesterday's chapter was a, a wrestling of the prophet Habakkuk with the Lord, struggling to see why evil can continue to exist. Habakkuk prays. God responds. Habakkuk prays, and we start with the end of that second prayer of Habakkuk with chapter 2, verse 1 today. And then the rest of this chapter is God's response, a declaration that he will come to judge Babylon. That's the main theme. Uh, you can pick it up in any of those couple of verses, really, as you read your way through. Uh, so, verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. They've been lifting them up. God's going to make them low. 
Uh, later in that verse, the cup in Yahweh's right hand will come around to you. That is the cup of God's judgment, the cup of his wrath that he will pour out upon them. So that's the basic idea of the chapter today, but let's look at some of the details. So first, Habakkuk ends his prayer by saying he's going to stand at his watch post, stationed on the tower, waiting to see what Yahweh will say to him. Now, this is the picture of the city watchman. So your city has a wall around it and or towers within it, and you would post a watchman either in the tower or on top of the wall so that he can w- watch, he can look off in the distance to see if friend or foe approaches, if an enemy army is coming to give you advanced warning so you can begin to prepare, or if, you know, maybe a, a visitor of importance is coming, that you can also begin to prepare in a very different way. So Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, serving as a watchman, he's waiting for Yahweh to speak to him so he knows what to do next. How should he as a prophet respond? He's given to speak God's word to his people. What does he have to say? So in a similar manner, we can have a conversation with our children. What is your post? Where has God stationed you? What has God given you to do? Now, I mean, you're not overlooking the city of Jerusalem. You're not overlooking Babylon. But you're, so in talking to parents here, you're a dad. You're a mom. You're a husband, you're a wife, you're a son, you're a daughter. How has God given you responsibilities in life to look after your family, to serve in your community, to care for your congregation, to care for your pastor? What what things are there for you to love God and to love your neighbor? Those are some good conversations to look to. How can you how can you continue to be on watch and to care for others? Now, in this case, God is going to answer, and again, it's the rest of the chapter. So write the vision, make it plain on tablets. This is not a tablet like you think of that you can go to Best Buy or buy off of Amazon, an iPad or something like that. This is basically a stone tablet that has been written into, carved into, or engraved upon It's the message of God to his people. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets. That's what Habakkuk chapter 2 is. Habakkuk has written the vision. He's made it plain. He has revealed it to God's people. That was his watchtower. That's what he was supposed to see come. And he's done it. So he may run who reads it. That is in reference perhaps to the messenger who receives the tablet, that he can run to deliver the message to where it needs to go, whether it's good news to the Jews or bad news to Babylon, depending on who the messenger might be. Or it could be that he who reads it is Babylon and he could run to repent. Although in the context here, that's not the result that's expected, nor historically what happens. Although there is a period of repentance, perhaps, but it ultimately is going to be Babylon's fall. The vision awaits its appointed time. God's judgment will come, but not just when we want it to. The Lord knows all things. His judgment is patient. The Israelites go down to the land of Egypt and they end up living there for 430 years. 
Why so long away from the promised land? God was giving the Amorites a chance to repent, the people living in the promised land. He was giving them time before he judged them. That's Genesis 15:16, where God made the promise to Abraham to start with. He said, they, will come, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God sends the recipient of the promised land away for a period of time, his time. And when the time is up, when the Amorites have failed that repentance and God has given them plenty of opportunity, God sends judgment upon them. And he uses the Israelites, he brings them up out of Egypt to be the ones to bring that judgment on I can't just say Amor, but the Amorites. And he does. They do. It comes. And so it will be here uh, that the judgment in its proper time will befall Babylon. And it happens in one solitary night in 539 BC, although there's a lot of battles before that. But it's, it's going to be the king overthrown, killed in his palace. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is an important conversation for us to think of today as New Testament era Christians, those who can see in hindsight the cross and all the salvation God has worked. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of Christ's return. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That fits us very beautifully because it does seem slow. It's been nearly 2,000 years. And if you're listening to this podcast and rewind like 10 years down the road, uh, it will have been 2,000 years since Christ made that promise. But it's a promise, and God is faithful. It's by his timing, and that time will come. It will not delay. God has set a moment in history when Christ will return, and we just wait. Every second that goes by, there's another one. We move one second closer to that fixed point in history. The end of history, really, when we think of it that way. There won't be any recording of history as far as I I can tell in paradise, as we are there and there's not even night anymore. There's no passing of day to night. There is no darkness at all. We're just with Christ forever. So we're moving towards that. That's an important reminder for us. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. These two verses, verses 4 and 5, are about the Chaldeans thinking very highly of themselves, their pride. Pride leads to the fall. Pride is destructive. It's one of the chief sins man can commit. But the righteous shall live by faith. It's a question for our children Who is righteous? And if they don't know what righteous means, describe it to them. Essentially, perfect does what God calls right, always does what God calls right. Who is righteous? There's a couple of good Bible verses to reference on this in a conversation. You can go first, perhaps, to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul wrote, None is righteous, no, not one. So the idea that we are all sinners, each and every one of us, there has been one righteous man in all of history, only one man who has kept every law God has ever made. That is Jesus Christ. And so then Genesis 15 verse 6 is helpful here as well. 
about Abraham, he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Faith. We are righteous by faith in the one who is righteous. Christ's death on the cross forgives all of our sins. Christ's death on the cross covers us. It takes away our guilt. He takes away our guilt. And in doing so, he makes his righteousness ours. And that's by faith. That then's a good spot for Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. By faith we are counted righteous. By our own works, not one of us is, but by our faith in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, we are seen as righteous by our Father in heaven. So it's a good conversation point for our our families to remember. Again, back to the Chaldeans and their pride, wine is a traitor. So drunkenness does not serve man well. It only leads to evil. An arrogant man is never at rest. His greed is wide as Sheol. Sheol is a reference here to death of the grave and basically a personification that death just wants to consume and it never stops consuming. You put a body in the grave that's not enough. It wants another one. And it will continue to consume until Christ returns. But the picture here is that such is the pride of the Chaldeans. They never have enough. They want to destroy more and more and more. And so he collects people. It's a pretty harsh phrase, really. That he thinks he is chief of man. However... And the next section is that these people that he's been collecting, imprisoning, enslaving, conquering, they're going to overthrow him. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. The people of this earth belong to God, not to a king. For how long will it last before the judgment strikes? Loading himself with pledges is most likely a conversation piece about people having to pay tribute, people being indebted to the king and owing him money on an annual basis, will not your debtors suddenly arise? Those who awake, so it gives a picture of their debt, the debtors being like asleep, and now they awake from that slumber to fight back. Basically, all the ones that he has spent his time oppressing are going to come against him. He has plundered many nations, they shall plunder him. Against Babylon here, they are declared guilty of the blood of man and also the, well, the destruction of creation. And that's a fitting response for us as well. We have spilled the blood of man. The nation in which I live is responsible for the most death in this century. This millennia, I guess I can technically say, because those are one and the same at the moment. Our government has killed more people than any other. And as far as I know, we also pave the, the way in, in the blood of the unborn. Killing roughly a million a year. And violence to the earth? We don't live life to care for the earth. 
as we were created to do. We were given dominion over it to rule and care for it. But instead, we look to the earth and think, how can it benefit me? How can I take material from the earth for my good? That's not just food. Think of all the things that are in your room that you're sitting in right now. Where did it all come from? Where does plastic come from? Where does wood come from? Where does metal come from? We've lived more like leeches or parasites than we have caretakers. Take, 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 not thinking of how to care for, how to beautify what God has made and called good. Even creation groans, according to Romans chapter 8, waiting for the restoration of her caretaker. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, that would be his household, his family, that he would be safe from the reach of harm by setting his nest on high. That reminds me of the Tower of Babel, which is also the Hebrew word for Babylon. It's the only spot we translate it Babel. Everywhere else in your Old Testament, it's Babylon, so that's what this is talking about too here. The Tower of Babel happens in the aftermath of the global flood, in which God sent a flood that wiped out the earth and covered even the tallest mountain in creation by 15 cubits, which is 22 and a half feet. So the people respond later on when their numbers increase by thinking that they can somehow avoid God's destruction, that they can somehow fight back against him, making a name for themselves, that he can't scatter them. So they build this massive tower, at least they start building a massive tower, thinking pridefully that they can outbuild his wrath which on the one hand is not true, they wouldn't be able to, but on the other hand also means that they haven't listened to the thing he said. Neither the call to repent, but also not the, the idea that he wouldn't flood the earth again. They've ignored the promise. They've ignored both the law and gospel in that way. They just pridefully focus on themselves. You have devised shame for your house. All evil plans lead to destruction. The stone will cry out from the wall, the beam from the woodwork respond. The works of man's hand stand in judgment against us. Whether it's the people, so building their city on the backs of slaves, for example, and the slaves are rising up against them, or it's the city itself. Just the idea that what we have built will be tested by fire and whether it prevails or not in the judgment. And it hasn't. In fact, none of what they built is really still here today for the most part, remnants in archaeology. Verse 13, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that nations weary for nothing? All things come from God, even our fruitless labors. Those are a consequence of our sin. So it is here for this nation that's being judged. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. That's Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, where God very specifically tells us the purpose of the plague is so that the Egyptians see and know that he is God, and they repent. And Ezra chapter 1, we see from King Cyrus, who defeated Babylon in 539, we see his decree. And in it, he acknowledges that it's Yahweh who gave him everything under heaven. 15 and 16a, just quickly, is the idea that they have punished their, their neighbors, their enemies. They've revealed their nakedness. That is, they've exposed them, they've made them shamed in the world. 
and they just kind of stare and laugh at it. You might think of a prisoner in a dungeon who's rotting away, and how the prison guard just kind of tortures him or mocks him about it. But also, God now flips it around. Drink yourself, show your uncircumcision. Their nakedness is about to be revealed. They're going to be turned from glory into shame. They were boasting, now they'll be humbled. And this is where we started, the idea that the cup in Yahweh's right hand will come around to you, his judgment, his wrath. We can think of the New Testament on this. Jesus answering James and John's question in Matthew 20 about if they could sit at his right and his left. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? That's God's wrath. The judgment of the Lord, he's about to drink upon the cross. Or in 26 verse 39 at Gethsemane, he says, let this cup pass from me, if possible. So utter shame will come upon your glory. Violence done to Lebanon, verse 17, likely referencing Nebuchadnezzar's over-harvesting of the region of Lebanon for its beautiful cedar wood to use in his projects. Verse 18 and 19 get into the idea of an idol. You can even use verse 18 to ask your kids a question. Just well, The Bible asks the question. Let that verse be the question. Let your kids answer it. What prophet is an idol? Man shaped it. Man trusts in his own creation. It can't speak. You can't talk to a piece of wood and say, wake up, or to a piece of stone and tell it to rise. They're just things. They can't do that. And yet that's where the world puts its hope. This is no different today. We make things with our hands, and then we worship them. Whether it's a piece of paper that has money symbols printed on it, or if it's a coin, whether it's uh, a moving image device, like a TV or a phone, right? We worship these things as a people, rather than trusting in the Lord above all things. Our hands made them. They can't save us. Our idols today do talk, sometimes be it Alexa, Siri, Cortana, whoever, they talk. But that doesn't mean that they're good. However, all of this, verse 20, Yahweh is in his holy temple. So whereas the idol can do nothing, the idol doesn't even exist, the idol is speechless, is powerless, cannot awake or arise, God is all of this. God is awake. God is coming. He is present in his temple. He is present with us. And you will fight for his people. And that's a reminder to us even to this day as we think about the battle between good and evil, the battle between the devil and angels, that God is fighting for us. And all we need to do, as Moses says to the people in Exodus 14, as Pharaoh presses them against the Red Sea, all we need to do is stay silent or stand still, depending on your English translation there. The Lord fights for his people. By the blood of Jesus on the cross and by an empty tomb, your sins are forgiven. We have life forever. Amen. Amen.